Well, it's 9.30, and it's time to start our class. We want to start on time, and we're going to bow our heads. But before we do that, let me tell you a little bit about the use of the workbook. To get the most out of class, you'll need a Bible, a pen, and the workbook. You'll also need a desk, and since you do not have one, the back of the person in front of you should work very nicely. So the idea is you balance your Bible on your knee, you take your workbook, and you put it on the back of the person in front of you. It's far better to take notes on their back than it is on their shirt, but um, you will do quite well if you do that. One of the things that you need to be aware of as we, in the use of the workbook we are not bound to the workbook. The workbook does not serve us. Whether we do not serve the workbook, it serves us. So there are going to be uh, areas in the workbook that I don't cover, and I will tell you that up front. Uh, but by the time you leave at the end of six sessions, I'll, I'll give you the key, and you actually have the key in your workbook for all of the answers, and so you can do a lot of self-study beside what we do in class. So if there is an area that I'm going over, and uh, I don't want you to be hung up on what do I write in my workbook and where does this go and I miss this word. Don't worry about that because of the fact that my goal is for this class to be an experience of uh, study of the Word of God, study of the writings of Ellen White, and an inspirational class too where you'll leave feeling not simply that you've stored information in your head, but you leave feeling that, that you've met Christ, that you have a new understanding of last day events and a new understanding of what Jesus wants to do in your own personal life. So, but you will have the key to all of the, um, all of the information in the workbook, and so you really don't have to worry that you're going to, going to miss something there. What I will do is I will direct you to certain pages that we will be filling in some blanks, and maybe by the second session I'll sit somebody at the computer with hooked up to the projector, and I'll have somebody over at the whiteboard. I'll organize that for the second session so that as I go on, if you're a little ambivalent in what to write in your workbook, we'll type that in and we'll put it up on the screen, and we'll have somebody writing on the workbook, uh, writing on the board later so that we'll get that material up as well. So if some of you are still coming in, there are a few seats around in here. I certainly don't mind if you want to come up and sit on the floor. If you're comfortable there, just feel free to do that. Um, so if you want, if you're in the doorway and you need a don't have a seat in the room and you want to sit on the floor, that's fine with me. Don't worry about it. If it's, more, if it's easier for you to sit on the floor and write than it is for you to stand, uh, just make yourself at home. This is no, that's no problem at all. Let's pray and then we will begin our session in this particular period of time. Father in heaven, deep within our hearts there's a longing for Jesus to come. We look at this world with its sin and degradation, with its poverty, with its, with its pestilence and pollution and war and famine. And Lord, in our hearts more than anything else, we want to go home. We want to be with Jesus, not for our sake, but for his sake, because for, no matter how much, Lord, we want you to come, you want to come more. Lord, your heart's broken over the sinfulness of this world. You created Eden so perfect, and now we have a world that's all messed up. And Lord, we just long to understand better the last day events, not so we understand a time chart, but we understand Jesus and his strategy and his plan and what's going to happen in this world. And so, Father, I pray that as we study together, that we'd be drawn close to the heart of God, that you'd inform our minds, impress our hearts, and revive our spirits. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Title of our class is Coming Events, and let me give you a brief overview of the course syllabus. And so if you have your syllabus, we're going to look at just an overview. As a class, I always like to know where we're going. I always like to know where we're headed. And uh, as a class, I, when I take a course, I want to know what topics the teacher is going to cover. And so in our first class, we're going to look at an overview of the coming crisis. You know, I've called that the coming crisis anticipated or dreaded. If you look, for example, on page four, and we'll come back to look at that shortly. But we're going to talk about the book of Revelation, the outline of end events in the book of Revelation. We'll look at the key events that's that are outlined there. When you come to class number two, session two, I've called that revival, genuine, or counterfeit. And if you'll look at the second session... We'll talk about the objects of Satan's attack, Satan's strategy, for example, his strategy on the unconverted, 
his strategy on Christians who are not Adventists, and we'll look at Satan's special strategy for Seventh-day Adventists. We will look in the second session at Satan's four strategies, particularly for Christians and for Adventists, and look at what he's doing, because if you know the enemy and you know what the enemy is going to do, you'll be able to counteract the counterfeit of the enemy. And so we'll look, for example, at Satan's false miracles, the false religious revival that he's going to bring to the world and to the Adventist church and how to tell the difference. We'll look at spiritualism and we'll look at Satan's impersonation of Christ. Toward the end of our second session this morning, we're going to talk about the latter rain, the ingredients of receiving the latter rain and what to do when the latter rain and how to be a recipient of the latter rain and when it will be poured out. In session three, one of the most powerful sessions of the entire class, we'll talk about shaken or sealed. You see, every human being will be in one or two classes at end time. They'll either be shaken or sealed. What's the difference between the shaking and the sifting? When does the shaking occur? When does the sifting occur? And does it make any difference if you know the answer to that question? It makes all the difference in the world. And so we're going to look at what... The shaking of Adventism, the sifting, will the church go through the crisis? And we're going to look at God's methods of the shaking. You see that in class three. Four classes that will be shaken out. And I'll take you back on a Bible study, and we'll look through Scripture at how people were early Christians and how they were shaken out at a time of persecution. We'll look, for example, at Demas and his life. We'll look at Judas and his life. And we'll look at Peter and a number of others who actually failed their Lord. We'll understand why. We'll apply that to the end time and we'll go into the writings of Ellen White and look at how that shaking will occur in Adventism. How many will leave God's church what will cause the shaking, what's going to happen in our beloved church, and how we can be aware of all that, and how the church will ultimately triumph at the end. In class number four, we're going to look particularly at the whole issue of worship and the National Sunday Law. We'll take a look at a misapprehension. Many Seventh-day Adventists, and even some Seventh-day Adventist pastors and Bible teachers, have the idea that a world leader will come on the scene and that that world leader will pass some kind of religious legislation. That's contrary both to the Bible and the writings of Ellen White. The National Sunday Law does not come from the top, it comes from the bottom. It's something the people want. And the legislators yield to the popular demand because they want to get elected. And we're going to study that and how that's going to happen in each step of its buildup, both from the Bible and the writings of Ellen White. We will then look at, once the National Sunday Law is passed, we'll look at the growing magnitude of the National Sunday Law because it's passed in phases. Many people think it's just going to happen. Not so. It's over a period of time. I'll show you that both in the Bible and the writings of Ellen White. So we're going to look at that. Then in class number five, we're going to look at the close of probation. And during that class on the close of probation, the seven last plagues, And we're going to look at plagues and promises and how do you see Christ in every single plague. Where is Jesus in every plague? And are the plagues arbitrary acts on the part of God? Or are the plagues something that have to do with the plan of salvation? So we will take a look at the plagues in class five. In class number six, we will talk about heaven and eternity and heaven is for real. So that is our overview for class today. Every single class will focus on Jesus. I remember teaching last day events, and a young woman came up to me in Australia. I was conducting a prophecy seminar in Australia, and this young woman was probably 17 or 18 years old. And she said, Mark, every time I used to think about last day events, every time I used to think about the time of trouble, I would almost vomit. I said, you'd almost vomit? Why? Why? And she said, my stomach would just turn and I'd get this headache and I'd break out in a cold sweat. And she wasn't fooling. She was, she was actually telling me the truth. And so I probed her a little bit. I said, why? And she said, because I knew that I just did not have the spiritual strength to stand through the time of trouble. She said, I hate pain. I hate it totally. And I hate to be alone. And I would get all these pictures of this pain and get all these pictures of, of, being in prison and not being able to eat and, you know, and not being able to buy or sell. And she said it became so overwhelming to me that I thought I'm never going to make it. It made me sick. But she said, I listened to your presentations and I saw Jesus. 
I love that old hymn, just when I need him, Jesus is near. Just when I falter, just when I fear, just when I need him most. So this class is not going to be doom and gloom. Every class, we're going to focus on Jesus. Every class, we're going to focus on his grace and love. Now, we need to be clearly informed on what's going to happen in the future. But an understanding of the crisis without an understanding of the Christ does not enable you to go through the crisis. An understanding of the pain without an understanding of the promises only leaves you to struggle. An understanding of doom without understanding deliverance only leaves you depressed. So you have doom without deliverance, you have depression. So we want not only to face what's coming, but face it confidently and courageously in Jesus Christ. Why study last day events? If you have your Bible, and I know you do, first... Chronicles chapter 12, and I will direct you at the right time to our workbooks, but a little introduction. Why study last day events? First Chronicles chapter 12 is a study of last day events, merely a study to fill our heads with information. Is it merely something to debate about? First Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32. The Bible tells us about a special group of people living in the days of Israel. They were called the tribe of Issachar. First Chronicles chapter 12 verse 32. And of the children of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Their chiefs were 200 and all their brethren were all were at their command. Now these this tribe was called the tribe of what? Issachar. And what did they have? Understanding of what? The times. Did their understanding of the times make any difference at all? What difference did understanding the times make? They knew what Israel ought to do. So understanding the time that we're living in, knowing that we're living in the last days of earth's history, enables us to know what we ought to do. So there is a direct relationship between understanding the times and hearing the call of God to your heart to prepare for the coming of the Lord. So the children of Israel, of Issachar, understood the times and they knew what Israel ought to do. Romans chapter 13 and verse 11. Romans 13 and verse 11. And do this, knowing the time. Now, did we read about a group of people in the Old Testament that knew the time? What was their name? Issachar. And because they knew the time, what did they know? They knew what, what? They knew what, what to do, right? Because they knew the time. Now, Romans thirteen eleven, And do this, knowing the time. Do these people know the time? What do they know? That now it is high time to wake out of sleep. This applies to everybody except you. Because you're not sleeping. All those other people that didn't come to GYC, they're sleeping, right? <laughs> All those churches you came from, they're sleeping, right? So this is a really a good lesson to apply to somebody else, right? Right? Who are you going to apply this to? And do this, knowing the what? Time. It is high time for me to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I've had people say to me, Pastor Mark, you've been preaching the Adventist message for 40 years now. I mean, I know I don't look that old. What are you laughing for? <laughs> Forty years I've been preaching about Jesus is coming, is coming. Seventh-day Adventist since 1844 talked about Jesus is coming. 165 odd years, 163 years been preaching. Jesus is coming, is coming, is coming. But he hasn't come. And I had a person say to me, a critic, Mark, don't we need to revise our theology? Because we've been preaching the coming of Christ for 163 years. And look at the generation after generation after generation that's disappointed that he has not come. Should we not revise our theology? And I said, look, I'm not real good at math. That wasn't my major, but I know this. If he didn't come in 1844, we're not 163 years further away from his coming. We're 163 years closer. So I'm not going to preach it with any less fervor if I'm 163 years closer than I was in 1844, right? We are not further from his coming than when Jesus was here 2,000 years ago. We are 2,000 years closer. 
And if we're 2,000 years closer, we must preach it with greater urgency. Please take your material and turn now. Check with the ushers in the back, please. And so one of you ushers handle that for me, would you? Thank you so much. We're looking at the promise of Christ's return. You're looking there on page 4. Once in every 25 verses, once in every 25 verses, do you see where we are? If I start you right, you'll end right. So you're writing in. What's the word you're writing in? You've got it. Okay, that's all I need to do. One lesson and we're off. Once in every 25 verses in the New Testament discusses the second coming of Christ. One Bible scholar has counted at least 1,500 scriptural references to the second coming. So if Jesus, throughout Scripture, mentions the second coming of Christ 1,500 times, what do you think? I give our Lord credit for outlining the things in the Bible that are the most important. And if something comes there 1,500 times, it must be vitally important. Now, of all the books in the Bible, the book of Revelation outlines those events that will occur at end time. Revelation has been written for a generation that would live at the crisis of this close of this earth's history. Now, Revelation is not a book merely about signs and symbols and imagery. If you have your Bible, please take an enter into Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Revelation is not merely a book about beasts. It's a book about the Lamb of God. And in the book of Revelation, there are seven contrasts. Now, you'll notice that I've always left some space to write. And uh, if you want to write the seven contrasts of Revelation, you can. It's not a place here. There's not a line for it. But here's the seven contrasts in Revelation. And you can find a place for you in your notes. There'll be a blank page at every end of every chapter. You want to write it in your notes, you can. You can summarize the book of Revelation in seven contrasts. And here are the contrasts in Revelation. First, there are two leaders in Revelation, the dragon and the lamb. In the book of Revelation, there are two signs. There is the seal of God and the mark of the beast. So in Revelation, there are two leaders, the lamb and the dragon. In Revelation, there are two signs, the seal of God and the mark of the beast. In Revelation, there are two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. Do you have it? Two leaders, two signs, two cities. In the book of Revelation, there are two women, the bride of Christ and the harlot woman. All of Revelation can be summarized In these seven contrasts, you know, Revelation is a book of sevens, isn't it? Seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. But here are the contrasts in Revelation. Seven spirits before the throne of God. Two leaders, the lamb and the dragon. Two signs, the seal and the mark. Two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. Two women, the bride of Christ and the harlot woman. Two harvests, two harvests. Golden grain and gory grapes. Golden grain, the harvest of God, a people who reflect his image and are ready for his coming. Gory grapes, those tread out in the winepress of his wrath, the saved and the lost. That's to the true harvest. Two spirits in Revelation, two spirits, the Holy Spirit and the spirit of demons. And as we'll study in our class, both spirits work miracles. But one group of miracles are true and one group of miracles are false. So in Revelation, you have two spirits. And in Revelation, you have two choices. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. He that is unholy, let him be unholy still. So you have the righteous and the unrighteous, or the holy and the unholy, however you want to put it. So there are two choices. In the book of Revelation... Every person at end time will be in one of those two classes. At end time, every human being will either line up with the lamb or the dragon. They will be under the banner of one of two leaders. At end time, every human being will either receive the seal of God or the mark of the beast. At end time, every human being will either be part of Babylon, the city of religious confusion, or they'll be part of Jerusalem, the city of truth. 
at end time. Every human being will either line up with the bride of Christ of Revelation 12 or the harlot woman of Revelation 17. You've got it. They either be part of the harvest of golden grain or the harvest of what? Gory grapes. They'll either be receive the Holy Spirit and have the fullness of latter rain of the Holy Spirit or they will be filled with the spirit of demons. At end time, everybody is going to be filled with the spirit. There's only one question to ask. Which spirit? Which spirit? See, that's the only question to ask. Right now, you have those that are sold out for Christ and you have those that are against Christ, but there's this great middle ground. Revelation leads you to the divine drama of destiny where there's no middle ground anymore. No middle ground anymore. It's not, oh, uh, I'm not going to be filled with the latter rain, but I'll just be some kind of nominal Christian. No, every human being at any time is either going to be filled with the latter rain Holy Spirit power or they're going to be filled with demonic spirits. Do we see the crisis intensifying today? The crisis is intensifying. The crescendo is building. And at end time, every human being will make one of two choices. Now back to your workbook. Revelation has two great objectives. Revelation has two great objectives, and you will notice them here. Revelation's objectives are, number one, to reveal the plans of God. Number two, to unmask the plans of Satan. So when you look at Revelation... It is to reveal the plans of God and to unmask the plans of Satan. Revelation is God's end time war strategy. Every good general in a war has a war strategy. And so Revelation reveals God's end time war strategy. It reveals what God is going to do at end time. Now, looking at page 5 top, there are two areas of focus in this coming events seminar. There are two specific areas. We're going to look at a general outline of end events. So you might just want to write there, end time events outline. So we're going to look at this outline of end time events. You're going to see that. Particularly today, I'm going to take you through the general outline of end events. Then, the second area of emphasis is Christ in the crisis. So, we're looking at an outline of end events and Christ in the crisis. The heart of the book of Revelation is the 14th chapter. And we'll be looking at this general outline of end events and Christ in the crisis. If you have your Bible, I'll walk you through the events that are coming between now and the coming of Jesus. We are first going to look at this in the Bible, and then I will support it in the writings of God's last-day prophet, Ellen White. Now, I have no apology to make at all using the writings of Ellen White. Seventh-day Adventists base all of their doctrines on the Bible. Every single thing we teach is based on Scripture. The concept of the shaking and the sifting is biblical. The concept of the latter rain is biblical. The concept of the coming time of trouble, as I'll show you, is biblical. Adventists are a Bible-based believing people. But it's like this. If I am on a boat that's just made its trip across the Atlantic, and I'm coming into harbor and there are jagged rocks in the harbor, and there's fog in the harbor, and I have been following the map, and the map, the Bible, will get me through the harbor, but my best friend is a pilot who sends me his chief navigator to board my vessel to help me follow the map more clearly to get me through the harbor at the end of my journey in the fog, I am not going to say to my best friend, too bad, I'm going to journey myself, I'm going to read the map. I'm going to say, thank you, friend, because you sent me a navigator to help me to understand the map, to get through the fog so I don't hit the rocks at end time. The gift of prophecy 
The spirit of prophecy is a gift from Jesus. And when Jesus sends his church an end time navigator to help me to understand the map more clearly during the foggy times of the end, I am not going to reject a gift from Jesus and think that my wisdom is sufficient. I thank God for the gift of prophecy and the end time gift of the spirit. So we'll use the Bible in the gift of prophecy. Now let's go to Revelation 14. Revelation 14, we begin with verse 6. We're going to look at Revelation 14, and we're going to briefly look at an outline of end events. And I'll go back to the section in the manual a little later on the four key events that are announced. But I want you to see from the Bible an overview of end events, and I want you to be sure you have them clearly in your mind. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Before the coming of Jesus, there will be an end-time message, according to Revelation 14, verse 6, that goes to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So here is a a prediction that God's last-day message will be carried to the ends of the earth. The closer we get to the time of the end, the more the fourth angel will join the message of the three angels. Revelation 14 describes the three angels. Revelation 18 describes the fourth angel. And after these things, now, when you read after these things, what is your first question? You got it. What things? What things is the after these things referring to? The after these things is referring to Revelation 17, when the woman rides on the scarlet colored beast and church and state unite. Now, are you getting the picture? Revelation 14, 6 describes the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Are you with me? It also describes a great crisis, as we shall see. As that crisis develops, according to Revelation 17, church and state unite. Unusual power from beneath calls for extraordinary power from above. So as the crisis unfolds and there is a union of church-state powers, and in the class we're going to look at what contributes to those, Demonic spirits work through spiritualism and false miracles, and we'll study a whole session on that. When that begins to happen, and as these end events begin to develop, the gospel which has been preached throughout the world has added impetus and added power. The fourth angel of Revelation 18 joins with the angel of Revela- the three angels of Revelation 14, and notice Revelation 18, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great, what? Power or authority. And the earth was illuminated with his glory. So at a time of dense darkness, when church and state unite, at a time when the powers of evil are working through immorality, through sexual sin, through pleasure through false and counterfeit miracles and revival, at a time when the devil unleashes the fullness of his power, God is not left without witness. And he sends the Holy Spirit in abundant power, and the earth is illuminated with the glory of God. And according to the book of Exodus, the glory of God is his character. And so we see the final full revelation of the glory of God at end time. Back to Revelation 14. We are on verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those that dwell on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people. It is incredibly exciting to sense that indeed the gospel will go to every nation, every tongue, and every people. It's incredibly exciting to recognize that no corner of the earth is going to be left without the proclamation of the gospel. One thing about young people is they're idealistic. You don't want to give your life to something that's going to be like a candle and flicker and be blown out at the end. You want to give your life to something that's big, something that's grand, something that's unusual. You don't want to waste your energy 
waiting in kiddies' waiting pools, picking up pennies when you can be diving for pearls. You wouldn't want to be climbing anthills when you can climb the Himalayas. See? You can be part of something big for God, something great for God. You can give your energies to something that's worth giving your energies to. Something that's not going to let you down at the end. You can be part of the, you can receive the latter rain. You can be part of giving the loud cry. You can become part of God's superstars in the last generation that's going to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth before Jesus can come. Jesus is going to raise up a whole generation of young people that are going to participate in the giving of his gospel to the ends of the earth. Don't sell out for anything else because if you do, you sell out cheap. Don't sell your soul like Judas cheap when you can be part of something big, something great for God, something unusual for God. That can, God can move through you and God can change lives through you and God is going to use young people. The greatest Bible, the greatest evangelistic meetings to be held are, to be, are yet to be held. The greatest crowds are yet to come to our meetings. I know what it's like to stand Port Moresby, Port New Guinea, Papua New Guinea before 100,000 people and let them come every single night and listen to our evangelistic meetings. To see 20,000 come forward in an altar call. But as my father would say who was born in New York... Came out of the city. You ain't seen nothing yet. 84 years old. We'll talk about what God's going to do at any time. And dad will say, Mark, you ain't seen nothing yet. He still knows how to keep his son humble. (laughs) I don't have to worry about that. I got enough people keeping me humble. (laughs) Revelation 14, verse 6. I saw another angel fly. The angel does not float. He does what? Flies. It's quickness, rapidity. In the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Now, verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. Now, the word fear is not the word um, be afraid of. It's the word have reverential awe for. Reverence God. Give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of waters. There are some things we need to see there. First, it says obey God. At a time of moral relativism. At a time when the prevailing thought pattern is, there is no objective standard for truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, you leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. Whatever you believe is okay to believe. There is still a message calling men and women back to fear God. God still says, I'm the supreme authority, not the self in your heart. It is not the emergence of the self It is prostrating us before God in humble submission, accepting his authority in our lives. The gospel of the New Testament, and certainly the gospel of Seventh-day Adventists, and certainly the teachings of Revelation, is a million miles from the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel so prevalent today. It is not an egocentric gospel. It's a gospel that is not focused on who I am, but focused on who he is. It's not focused on the improvement of me. It's focused on the submission to him. And if in my giving glory to him, he blesses my life with wealth and health, that's up to him. But if my lot is one of poverty and sickness, that's up to him too. Because he longs to be glorified in our lives. Whatever lot those lives take, whatever direction. So... Scripture says, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him. The essence of life is to give glory to God, for the hour of his judgment has come. In the age of moral relativism, it speaks about the judgment. Judgment speaks about accountability. Judgment speaks about moral responsibility. Judgment speaks about the significance of our actions. It says, worship him. In an age of evolution, we are directed to the creator, the one that created heaven and earth. Now, notice the contrast. In Revelation 14, 7, you have true worship. There's a call to obey God. There's a call to give glory to him in everything I do, what I eat, what I drink, my lifestyle. There's a call to moral responsibility in the light of the judgment. There's a call to obedience, and there's a call to worship the creator in the age of evolution with the Sabbath as the symbol of his creative authority. How do I worship him as creator? The Sabbath is the symbol of his creative authority. Now, notice, in contrast to verse 6 and 7... We have verse 8. Those churches who reject this everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ that's to go to the ends of the earth, of his grace, his mercy, and love, 
Those churches that reject the message of obedience, fear God. Those churches that reject the concept of giving glory to him in what we eat or drink or whatever we do. Those churches who fail to understand the judgment hour that we're living in a unique time of history, a special time. It's no longer business as usual, no longer pleasures as usual, but we're living in the judgment hour. Those churches that reject that. Those churches that turn their back on the symbol of worship of the creator, namely the Sabbath. Those churches in verse 8 are called Babylon, and the Bible says Babylon is what? Fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. In the Bible, wine that is unfermented represents true doctrine. Wine that is tainted represents false doctrine. Just as wine affects the forebrain, so you cannot think or reason clearly. So the wine of Babylon gets people intoxicated. So they're intoxicated with the wine of Babylon. Oh, as long as I love Jesus, I can smoke a little bit. That doesn't make any difference. We're saved by grace. Sabbath, you guys are legal. The intoxication of false doctrine, right? But the Bible says Babylon is what? Full. The second angel's message follows the what? First angel's message, because if the second angel's message did not follow the first angel's message, it would be the first angel's message. Now, that doesn't take much of a genius to figure out. So the second angel's message follows the first. But the second angel's message not only follows the first, but it is a consequence of the first. Because if you accept the fullness of the everlasting gospel, if you're part of a movement that believes your end time, that's going to the ends of the earth, If you understand body temple, that you give God glory, whatever you eat or drink, the true church preaches the first angel's message. The fallen churches of Babylon reject the first angel's message. That's why they become Babylon. But Babylon is what? Fallen. I have a question for you to think about. If Babylon is fallen and you are looking up to Babylon, aping her methods admiring her strategies and going to her seminars, where are you? I just ask one thought question. I don't give answers. But you need to think about it a little bit more. If Babylon is fallen and you are aping Babylon, admiring Babylon, wanting to absorb everything from Babylon and she has fallen and you are looking up to her, where are you? We go on verse 9 I do not mean to infer that there are not some good things that occasionally you can read in non-Adventist literature I am not so arrogant that I think that that's true neither am I so arrogant to think that there's not some good things that we can be taught we need to have humility but I recognize that the good things that I see some of those people going to those seminars to pick up and Bring back to us, there is one who had the gift of prophecy that told us long ago, and I didn't need to spend $175 to go there. (laughs) There are some pretty good things in those books, and I am convinced if the church would follow them, we'd be far better off than most of those seminars that some people go to. But I may not preach on that too much. How did you guys get me off track? (laughs) Verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast. Verse 7 says to do what? Verse 7 says what? Worship what? The creator. Verse 9 says do not worship what? The beast. Now what happens to those who worship the beast? It says he'll drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now what is the wine of the wrath of God? Revelation 15 verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So what's the wrath of God? Seven last plagues. Is the wrath of God the anger of God? Not at all. The wrath of God has to do with the judgments of God. So the wrath of God are the judgments of God against sin. Are you beginning to get an emergent picture? The gospel, Revelation 14, verse 6, is to go to the ends of the earth. As the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, there will be a reaction for or against the gospel. The unique aspects of the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. A call to obey God, 
a call to be ready for Christ's coming in the judgment hour, a call to worship the Creator. Churches that reject that become Babylon. Most of God's people today, as we'll study later, are still in Babylon. And God is calling them out of Babylon. The devil, seeing the message of Revelation 14:6 going rapidly to the ends of the earth, comes at it with a counterfeit revival. He comes at it with signs and wonders and miracles. So you have two things happening simultaneously. The mighty working of the Holy Spirit and the marvelous working of demons. As this comes to a crescendo in time, as we'll see, all hell breaks loose on earth. Natural disasters, economic disasters, war, conflict, strife. We study that more next time. In the midst of all this, the honest in heart are brought to the surface. And the mighty latter rain power comes with the loud cry. When every human being has an opportunity to be fully sold out for Christ or against Christ, human probation closes and the seven last plagues are poured out. That's the story of Revelation 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. That's the summary. Now notice verse 12 of Revelation 14. Revelation 14, 7 is worship the Creator. Revelation 14 and verse 8 is Babylon has fallen because she's turned from true worship. Revelation 14, 9 is don't worship the beast. Revelation 14, 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So Revelation 14, 7 is a call to worship the Creator. Revelation 14, 9 is a call not to worship the beast. And in contradistinction to all that, in Revelation 14, verse 12, you have this appeal that those who do not take the mark of the beast and those who do not drink the wine of Babylon, here is the endurance of the saints. That's believers. Here are the ones that endure. Who are they? They keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. That is to say, they are committed to Christ. And as the result of that commitment, they live a life of obedience to Jesus. This brings a crisis, and the crisis comes when everybody must decide, and that leads into the seven last plagues, the close of human probation, and at the end of those plagues, Jesus comes, as we'll see. So let's go back to our workbooks. There are four key events announced. You're looking at the first seminar session, page five. You're looking under the bold heading, four key events. Key event number one, the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel. That's to go to the ends of the earth. That's the first key event. When I see the gospel going around the world right now, through radio, through television, through internet, through satellite television, through tens of thousands of Adventists who are sharing the gospel, through multiplied millions of Adventist lay people who are having a revival of spirit and who are around the world proclaiming the gospel, a, a chain of events is being set in motion. God's getting ready to move. God's getting ready to move. Because the Lord is using so many agencies. God's bringing things together in unusual ways. So there's the proclamation of the gospel. Then, second key event. Those who proclaim the gospel announce the pre-advent judgment. We're saying as we go around the world... To Christians, to non-Christians, this is no longer time as usual. This is no longer business as usual. We're living in the judgment hour. Noah preached 120 years. Judgment is coming. Adventists have been preaching over 140 years. The world's a little larger. And so we're living at end time. Announcement of the judgment. Fourth key event in Revelation 14, 7. Oh, third. Thank you. Third. There's a call to worship the Creator. There's a call to worship the Creator. Seventh-day Adventists call men and women back to worshiping the Creator God. We do not believe we evolved from fortuitous chance and that we are a genetic biological accident. We don't believe that we are simply a collection of chemical molecules that exist because the right combinations of genes and chromosomes came together. You were formed in the mind of God before you were conceived in the womb of your mother. And a loving God formed you and shaped you and fashioned you. 
you're not a biological accident. You're not simply skin covering bone. You have purpose and meaning and direction in your life. And at an age of evolution, when people have lost hope and meaning and meaning and purpose in their life, because all I am is if all I am is skin and bones, where does life have purpose? Where does it have meaning? If the grave is the end, and I'm simply an enlarged species of animal creation, if I am simply an intelligent ape, if that's all I am, an ape, yes, but more intelligent a little bit, if, if I, I've got a little bit more evolutionary process in the neurons of this thing called the brain than an ape, if, I, if there's no conscience, if there's no reason, if there's no judgment, if I'm just a biological animal, and if my only hope is a dark hole in the ground, and if death is a long night without a morning, then the survival of the fittest is an adequate philosophical approach to life. And if all I am is an intelligent ape, then I better squeeze out as much pleasure as I can for the next 75 years or 80 years or 60 years, whatever it is. But if I'm created in the image of God, if the purpose of life is to glorify Him, and if one day I can live with Him in a land where there is no sickness, suffering, and death for all eternity, that gives life meaning. That gives life focus. That gives life hope. The message of Sabbath, leading the world back to a creator, is the answer to the problem of low self-esteem. It's the answer to the problem of purposelessness and meaninglessness. Talk about the postmodern mind. God knew what he was doing when he crafted the Adventist message to philosophically tailor it to meet the minds of a generation that have lost hope. The three angels' message is not some antiquated 19th century mentality that was, that was developed by a bunch of bearded old fuddy-duds. The three angels' message was crafted by God given to intellectual Adventist pioneers. It becomes more relevant every generation that passes by. Every generation that passes by. The Adventist message is more relevant. When communism fell, I was invited to come to Sheikh University. Sheikh University is one of the most secular, godless universities in the world. It was in the country of Hungary intelligent intellectuals and they said to me pastor you come there the president of the university invited me to come he said you're going to give a lecture on astronomy I don't know much about astronomy <laughs> I had one lecture on astrology astronomy. I took a class on astronomy in college but he said this is what we're going to do you speak on astronomy for one hour then we're going to have an atheist speak on astronomy for an hour and then the questions are going to come from the students and I said Mr. President that's a wonderful idea. I'm happy to accept the invitation. But you let your atheist astronomer speak first since I'm your guest and let me speak second. I mean, I may be a preacher, but I'm not that stupid. <laughs> because I knew that I may not know a lot, but I know how to ask a lot of good questions. And I want to ask questions about his lecture. I don't want him asking too many questions about mine. So I went to the university, got there, and the uh, university professor said to me, he said, now, um, Mr. Finley, we got a problem here. I said, what's the problem? He said, the other university professor is supposed to lecture first. He had to be called away. He's not here to lecture today. I said, praise the Lord. I've been praying. <laughs> I don't know if the rapture took place or not, but man, <laughs> I've been praying that guy would be gone, rapture. <laughs> so I said, no problem at all. Just let me speak for two hours. <laughs> spoke for two hours on the existence of God, the philosophical, psychological evidence for the creator God. At the end of the lecture, we had questions and answered. Faculty was sitting over on this side and the students were sitting here. I had talked about creation and the marvel of the stars and the creator God and how that answers the great philosophical questions of life because I knew they could debate me on, I knew they could debate me on, uh, on science, but I knew they couldn't debate me on philosophy because I knew that the philosophical underpinnings of atheism are bereft. They are, they are absolutely barren. There is no philosophical underpinning of atheism that gives you any kind of moral ethic at all. And they know that, and we know that. And so at the end of the lecture, a student raised his hand, 
And I could tell that he had been prompted by the faculty because the faculty sat on the right and he was sitting in the center. And so the student raises his hand and the student says, uh, Mr. Finley, yeah, uh, I got a question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, when the Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin circled the stratosphere in the Sputnik, he said he never saw God. Did you ever see God? <laughs> I knew where he was going. And, you know, all of a sudden, sometimes the Lord gives you an answer. And it's not something you've thought about before. And the Lord puts that in your mind. And the Lord put an argument in my mind. And I said to him, I, I went a different direction. I said, now, I have a question to ask you. I said, I want to leave God out of it. I want to leave the Bible out of it. Leave faith out of it. I just want to talk about some intellectual things. And I said, of all the knowledge in the world that there is, how much knowledge do you as students have? Let's say, for example, there are about 2,800 known languages in the world. How many do you speak? Do you speak 100 languages? you speak 200? You know, how many languages do you speak? Of all the knowledge of chemistry that there is in the world, how much knowledge of chemistry do you have? Let's suppose there were 500 new books written on chemistry in the last 10 years. How many of those 500 have you read? Of all the knowledge of astrophysics in the world, uh, let's talk about China. Let's talk about the Ming Dynasty. I want you to give me right now, take out a piece of paper, please, and write... Uh, the, uh, the 17 emperors of the Ming Dynasty, I want you to write who they married and their 38 sons or daughters or whatever it is. You know, just, just tell me all that. Tell me all that. Of all the knowledge in the world, of all the books printed this year, of the thousands and thousands and thousands of books, and of all the scientific knowledge, how much do you have? Would you say you know 50% of all that there is to know from an intellectual standpoint? They said, no, we don't know 50% of all there is to know. Do you know 25% of all there is to know? No, I don't know 25% of all there is to know. Do you know 10% of, of all the knowledge? Say, this thing out here is some body of knowledge. How much do you know? 10% of it? No. I said, I looked at the teachers, because I knew where that question was coming from. It was coming from the teachers, not the students. So I said to the teachers, will you give me this one that your students maybe know 5% of all there is to know? And they said, no, 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 they don't. I said, okay, because you teachers are so outstanding, you've got so many PhDs in this faculty, you're so intelligent. You know, you've got to play it to them sometimes. You're so intelligent, you know 5% of all there is. Your students know 5%. That means you don't know 95% of all there is to know. So I only have one question. If by your own admission you don't know 95% of all there is to know, could God exist in the 95% of the knowledge you don't have? Amen. You're telling me that this is knowledge, and you're telling me you only know this 5% of that knowledge. You're telling me by your own admission you don't know 95% of all there is to know. Could God exist in the 95% of the knowledge you don't have? And they said, Mark, from an intellectual standpoint, that's true. Now, let me ask you another question. If there's only two alternatives, one alternative, and I'm not asking you to believe. I'm just saying if there are only two alternatives, one is a loving God created you. He fashioned you. He shaped you. And that he's with you in your life, and he'll give you purpose and meaning, and beyond the grave you can live with him for eternity. And there'll be no sickness, suffering, and death. I'm not asking you to believe that. I'm saying if that's an alternative, or this is the second alternative, there's really no meaning to life, you're an enlarged animal, you're a little higher than the apes, you have no direction or purpose in life, and when you die you go into the grave and Russian worms eat your body. Now, if that's the only two choices you have, which one are you going to take? <laughs> I'm not asking you to believe. I'm just asking you if those are the two choices you have, which one are you going to take? They said, obviously, we'll take the first one. I said, then you're not an atheist because an atheist says, I don't know God. I, I, I know God doesn't exist. You told me that you don't know if God exists or not because he might exist in the 95% of the knowledge you don't have. You then told me then you're not an agnostic either because an agnostic says God may not exist, but if he does, I don't even care. But you just told me you did care. You know what you are? You're a seeker whose minds have been programmed uh, with atheistic knowledge because you haven't heard the other side of the question and that's why I came today because you're really seekers <laughs> see you're seekers that's what they are they just didn't know they were seekers and somebody had to tell them that they were seekers See, the reason they functioned the way they did is because of what was programmed into their minds but deep within their heart they were seekers and I said look I brought 25 Bibles any seekers who want a Bible have to come up and get one I thought there was going to be a riot <laughs> Those kids get up out of their seats and mauled me literally for Bibles, almost fought over the Bibles. Why? Because the message of a creator God is the message that our heart longs for. We don't want to be any speck of cosmic dust in the universe. We want to know God created us. So that's the message of Adventism that will bring the world to a crisis at end time. That's why the devil hates the Sabbath. The devil hates the Sabbath because if the Sabbath were always kept, there would be no evolution. And the devil wants to destroy the concept of God. 
And so, what are these key events? Proclamation of the gospel, one. Two, judgment. Three, worship the creator. Four, warning against false worship. A warning against all false worship. Now, as that message goes out, as the gospel is proclaimed, as the message of the judgment goes out, the message of this gracious Christ who will stand with us in the judgment, as the message goes out, a call to worship the Creator and obey God, as this warning against false worship goes out, there will be an issue in earth's final conflict, bottom of page 5. The great issue in earth's final conflict involves loyalty to God. And what you will find as we study end events is that's the heart of the question. The heart of the question is not some ultra-perfectionism. The heart of the question is loyalty to God. Do you have an undivided heart? Have you made a total commitment to Jesus Christ? Is your heart loyal to Him? In the coming crisis that will come in the future, in the coming crisis that will come in the future, God will not abandon his children. God will not leave us. There are two great biblical examples of God's ability to deliver. Page 6, left-hand side. One is found in Daniel chapter 3. And you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we're going to look at Daniel 3 just momentarily. Is there a crisis coming? Yes. Will that crisis be over the law of God? Certainly. Will there be a time of trouble beyond any time of trouble? Most definitely. Will God leave his children during that time? Certainly not. Certainly not. If you look at Daniel chapter 3, there is a distinct parallel between Daniel chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 13. Let's look at the parallels. In Daniel 3, there is a universal world leader, correct? In, Daniel, in Revelation 13, there is a universal world leader. Who's the universal world leader in Daniel 3? Who is that? Nebuchadnezzar. Who is the universal world leader in Revelation 13? Beast power. The beast power at end time. Okay, so you have the contrast. Daniel chapter 3, there is a counterfeit image. If you look at Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. This image of gold was a counterfeit to the image of Daniel chapter 2. Because in Daniel 2, you have the head of gold, breast and arms of silver, thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. God says, this is my description of history. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and Daniel 2. Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar, arrogant, proud, sets up this image of all gold because he doesn't like God's idea that another nation is going to follow Babylon. What are the dimensions of the image in Daniel 3? 60 and 6. Something beginning to strike in your mind? Counterfeit world leader, Daniel 3. Counterfeit world leader, Revelation 13. False image, Daniel 3. False image, Revelation 13. Dimensions 60 and 6. 6 is a symbol always of imperfection. 666. Three sixes, why three trinity, dragon, beast, and false prophet? Are you with me? So 666 is more than vicarious filiae dei. That's the external manifestation of that. But there's a lot deeper in it than that. So if you look at the triple sixes, in the, in the, in the book of Revelation, you have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? That three, always, three represents the Godhead. And so you have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have the dragon, the beast, and false prophet. That's the trinity of error. Six is one less than seven. Six always represents apostasy. So what is 666? It's the trinity of apostasy. It is the, it is the false counterfeit apostasy that violates God's law in the passing of a national Sunday law that leaves people to make a decision between the true God and the seventh-day Sabbath and the counterfeit Sabbath. See, that's what this is all about. Okay, Revelation, rather, Daniel 3. A counterfeit world ruler, that's Nebuchadnezzar, establishes a false image, an image of gold. The image is 6D and 6. It has 666. He sets it up on the plains of Dura. Now, he has a dedication to the image, and anybody that was anybody and everybody that was somebody, and all the royalty came, verse 3, the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the officials of the provinces gathered together. They dedicate the image to the king that he sets up. 
Now, the king passes a decree that anybody that will not bow down would be killed. False religious leader. Counterfeit image. Dimension 666. Universal worship. Bow down or be killed, a death decree. And the furnace is heated seven times hotter. Revelation chapter 13. Counterfeit world leader. The beast power. Establishes an image to that beast power. The idle, false day of worship. The issue in, Revel- in Daniel 3 is the second commandment. Don't bow down and worship any fallen image. So the second commandment becomes an external manifestation. It becomes a test question. Revelation 13, the fourth commandment, becomes the test question. And so in both instances, you have the counterfeit world leader. In both instances, you have the false image. In both instances, you have the command to worship. In both instances, you have the universal death decree. Both instances, God's people are persecuted and oppressed. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is wonderful, this is wonderful. Daniel chapter 3, you're looking at it there. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar is full of fury, and the expression on his face changed. Here in the end time, political leaders full of fury, we've got to do something. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are troubling the nation. Those Bible-believing Adventist Christians troubling the nation. Notice it says... He commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in the army to bind them. That is a form of imprisonment. They are bound. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans. They're bound. They are constricted. They are thrown into the furnace. Notice, therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of fire killed those men that threw them in. The only people that died that day were the persecutors, not the ones being persecuted. 23. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the fire. Verse 24. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose and made haste and said, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered. And he said, I see four men loose. We cast them in bound. But now they are what? Loose. The only things the flames did were burn up the ties that bound them to earth. So in the fiery trial that's coming, as we lift up our hearts in faith, the only thing the trial does is purify our faith so we long for heaven more. The trial does not destroy us. It burns up and consumes all those things that bind us to this earth. Then he says, verse 25, look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they were not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. In the midst of the flames, he was there. Tis so sweet. The trust in who? Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in prison were delivered by the mighty power of the living God. Christ did not leave them in their flames. He leapt into the flames and put the abestus coat of his righteousness around them to protect them. When Peter was in prison, God did not leave him. He leapt into the flames. He leapt into that prison and unlocked the prison house. I love that old hymn, don't you? Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. There's something about those old hymns. Just to take him at his word. Just to say, let's sing it together. Can you sing it? Who can start it? Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Can somebody start that? Sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to sow the same. great crisis is coming. Great crisis. But Jesus is sufficient for that crisis. Without Jesus, there is no way that you're going to make it through. You are not wise enough for the devil. He'll outsmart you every time. You're not strong enough for the devil. He's got temptations prepared for you 
that are more powerful than he's ever used in past history except on Jesus. The end-time generation of youth will face temptations that have been brewed in the laboratory of hell that have never, ever been used before with that power except in Jesus' life. There is no way that you're going to make it through those temptations without Jesus. All of your human power and all of your human strength and all of your human wisdom. But my dear friend, there is no way you're going to be lost with Jesus. Jesus has never lost a battle with Satan yet. Jesus has never lost in the temptations with Satan yet. In simple faith and in simple trust, we can have absolute confidence that like he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he'll protect us in the flames. Like he did with Peter, he'll deliver those prison doors, he'll open those prison doors, and we can ascend with him through glory. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his what? Word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to say, let's set the Lord Jesus, Jesus, how I trust thee. Let's pray. Father, this is the first of six sessions. We've just introduced it today. And now we're going to go into some very heavy material. But I pray that we'd never lose sight of Jesus. You're the center of revelation. You're the center of coming events. You're the heart of it all. And Lord, when we look at ourselves, we know that we are no match for the enemy, that he, was a, he is a fallen angel who is brilliant, that he's powerful. But our God has never lost a battle with him. Amen. Our God's whipped him every time. Amen. Our God's defeated him every time. Our God's laid him low every time. And so, Lord, in Jesus and by Jesus and through Jesus, we believe by faith we can be conquerors of earth's last Thank you, Lord, for the Bible. Thank you for the writings of Ellen White. And thank you for the light on the road ahead that you have given in Christ's name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at www.audioverse.org and at www.hopevideo.com.